Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 494 for November 5th, 2022. Welcome back. And we are six episodes away yep. from 500. Yeah, counting down. Um, this week we are following our um, interview um, with one of the candidates, with another candidate this week, uh, Leslie LeBlanc. Uh, she's one of eight candidates running in the 3rd Congressional District race, hoping to defeat Clay Higgins. Um, and um, we talk about some of her, uh, uh, about her life, but also about her um, political stances. And she's for a woman's right to choose. Uh, she wants to preserve um, gun ownership, but uh, have some good uh, regulations to keep, you know, to cut on the cut down on the amount of uh, gun violence we have in the state and the country. So, and we talked to her about many, many uh, different political uh, ideas. So, uh, well, in fact, and, and, and you pointed out, I mean, this is a very unsafe place if you're a woman, in particular, yeah. a woman who is, you know, carrying children or has children. Right. Uh, not just for gun violence, but also, as I was pointing out, for health and for you know, poverty, yeah. hunger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Louisiana's a rough place. Yeah, it's tough on our uh, our kids, and we just doubled the amount of childhood poverty in the country by letting the child tax fire. <clears throat> so, yeah, good going. And then they want to come on and uh, talk about how uh, our kids are in danger by trans people. Yeah, I bet they would like lunch. Just a just just a notion I have, but I bet those kids would really what they need is lunch, not to be free from critical race theory and free of uh, having to be around, uh, um, you know, uh, non-binary uh, gender people. Uh, yeah, let's get them some lunch. Let's, uh, you know, yeah, that 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 growling stomach's a lot scarier than that yep. point. You know, they need a <laughs> clothes. They need health care and. Uh, we're keeping all that from them. And then we want to parade around about how we care so deeply for the kids. So, yeah. Uh, um, well, you and I <laughs> think people know how we feel about stuff. So uh, we'll be talking to Leslie in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history. Yeah, so this week in Louisiana history, on November 5th, 1996, Mary Landrieu becomes the first Louisiana woman elected to the U.S. Senate. And, of course, she's also been the only one uh, so she spoke at my graduation from Tech. Hmm. I didn't know she came here. Mama loved her. I mean, she yeah, she came up here from New Orleans, and I think well, I say from New Orleans, she may have been a rep at the time. And anyway, she you know came to Tech for that graduation that year, and Mama fell in love with her. She said, "I like that young woman." And this is like back in 1984, 85. So this is you know over a decade, or about a little over a decade before she becomes a senator. And she said she's going places. You know, she really liked her. So. I like Mama made a good prediction, you know. <laughs> the whole Andrew family, they're just a political family that uh, do a lot of stuff in Louisiana. Now for this week in New Orleans history, buried alive, November 5th, 1970. Many people remember the guy who had himself buried in front of Taco Bell 
and 4001 Veterans Highway back in 1970, but few re- remember the details. Uh, so this 23-year-old Gretna man named John Diffley um, got into a coffin three by three by eight feet uh, with a little uh, slot to look out. Did it say why? Uh, yeah, he was trying to. This is wild. He was trying to raise money for college. Jeez. Oh, okay. A heck of a way to get some, some money, you know, for your tuition or whatever. But it wow. being Louisiana, a couple of people, a couple of guys dropped a snake down in the box. <laughs> they had to take him to the hospital. So Louisiana, I mean, you know, uh, we hear all about Florida man, but Louisiana man can keep up. Um, yeah, it's else? like a race, a race to see who can outdo the other for, for crazy or cruel, you know. Right. And for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, the, we profile the Kent House Plantation at 3601 Bayou Rapids Road in Alexandria. Uh, the website, there's a website, the telephone number is 318-487-5660. Uh, there is a fee of $11, entry fee of $11 for adults, $9 for senior adults, uh, people age 65 and over, and military and Triple A membership. No, okay, that's I guess nine dollar fee for all of them. Right. Three fifty for children ages six to twelve, and children under six get in for free. There are tours, which begin at the gift shop at the top of each hour, and the uh, plantation itself is open from Monday through Saturday, nine a.m. to uh, eleven a.m. Oh, okay, this is when the tours start, I suppose. Nine a.m., eleven a.m., one p.m., and three p.m. Right. Uh, I mentioned there is a website. Uh, have you ever taken that tour while you were in Alexandria? Actually, I have. I took her when he was maybe five or four or five years old. He was still pretty small. And uh, it's a very fascinating place. Of course, you know, like all plantations, it's rooted in slavery. Uh, but one thing that they do, they preserve some of the buildings around, so uh, uh, like the quarters, but also a blacksmith shop and also, the um, the way that they processed cane um, uh, um, for the plantation. They didn't um, sell it, uh, but it was just for internal consumption. Um, and, it's, you know, they got the big kettles. They got fire under it. Um, and I think there's a day in around now, sometime in November, uh, where they do all that stuff. You know, they, they demonstrate how this stuff was... Uh, um, went from cane to syrup and sugar. So yeah, yeah. they had to rend- they had to they would render it. And somebody yeah. was explaining to me about this just a week or two ago, and a, a friend of mine, and she was talking about her grandparents or somebody had a, a little mill. And I said, oh, my granddad up at Hilly, at their little hillbilly farm up there, had a mill. And I said they had an old jackass hooked up to a, a post. And yeah, that's why this one was. Exactly, it would walk in circles, and it had binders on like a horse. You would and have a. A donkey uh, pull, you know, pull that. Basically, a big limb <laughs> around yeah. and around, and uh, that crushed. The, exactly, uh, it, would, it would crush the juice out of it and then render it. And right. then you have a you had a skin that formed on top, like a foam. And these old guys that were uh, two fellows that were hands on the farm worked for my granddad, and they wanted that skin. And, oh, yeah. and Mr. Ernest, can we have the skin? He said, well, why do you want it? And then they said, well, they were going to drink it. It, it turned out it was mildly alcoholic, like beer. And my granddad was so tickled and said, take all you want, you know. <laughs> well, we would, um, 
our household, we love molasses, and molasses is what's left after everything else is processed. It's just like basically sludge. <laughs> I really like it. Now, none of my kids have ever liked molasses. But, you know, it's, of, of all the sugary things you can eat, I think it has iron. And, yeah, um, it does. Yeah, a little bit of it, – it's not as bad for you as a lot of the sugar stuff. So um, molasses on biscuits. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 yeah, Nathan loves that stuff. Is that, was that like the Steens ribbon cane yeah, syrup? Yeah, yeah. Steens is a, uh, a, one of the brands you get. But a lot of times, you know, I'm old enough that we would just get that from farmers that still made that stuff. Um, well, there was, a, there was a little old bell up here in the Delta where my aunt was from, up in Oak Grove, I think it was. It was in West, uh, what's that, West Carroll Parish. And this guy was doing what you're saying. He had a roadside stand by his farm, and he was selling it on the highway. So mm. they'd buy two or three gallons of it and bring it back to Baton Rouge when they'd come back, you know, from being up here seeing the relatives. And they'd stop off at this guy's place and pick it up and come back to Baton Rouge, and they'd give us one. They'd keep one. I think they gave another one to somebody that worked with my uncle. Um, uh, 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 molasses bucket. To me, identical to a paint bucket. You need to yeah, get a pint yeah. or a quart or a gallon, and um, but it was made, you know, with the lid that you had to pry off, and uh, so it, it was basically the same kind of can. Um, those are hard to find these days, and they're all in plastic. All right. So this week's postcard from Louisiana. Um, where was she? She was on Royal Street behind the St. Louis Cathedral, and uh, she's going to talk to us about her wares. All right, so I'm Bruce McGee. I am here today with... Lily. Lily. Hello, Lily. So nice to have you on our podcast. It's trying to upsell me. Uh, uh, So uh, what is it you do out here uh, at the backside of the uh, cathedral? Um, so I sell jewelry made out of bones. Um, oh, cool. I collect all of the bones myself. Are these people bones or animal no bones? People. No people. Okay. No one's pissed me off enough yet to uh, end up on my table. Right, but, right. Um, it's all animal bones I found myself. So mostly I get them on the railroad tracks. Sometimes I get them down by the river. Sometimes I uh, am gifted things. So... I just sort of find stuff around, um, clean it, treat it, coat it in resin, and then cool. turn it into jewelry. Do you have an online shop that my I, listeners could go to? I have an Instagram. Oh, yes. Um, where you can see my work, and they can shoot me a message if they're interested in anything. Good. Um, I also sell in Second Line Antiques on Decatur. That's the Instagram. is a good place to sell stuff like this, I would think. It sure. I actually moved here specifically to be able to do my artwork So where here. are you from? Originally, I'm from Atlanta. Um, yeah, Atlanta, Georgia. I've heard of them. So was it like you were coming home? Yeah, yeah. It definitely was like, I, I felt like I have more of a place here 
I feel like people appreciate what I do more here, um, and I'm more able to just kind of do artwork and, and make it work. Um, so that's awesome. Well, and there's kind of a low barrier to entry just at your folding table, folding chair. You come out here and you set it up. You don't have to get in a gout, you know, a big shop that costs a lot of money. Right, right, and like people, people will stop and look at it, you know. And in, in Atlanta, I feel like I, I set up street vending a couple times, um, but people kind of just walk past, you know. Um, and I do, I do try and like I, I am in an antique store here, um, cool. and I'm looking for, I'm trying to get into a couple other retail stores. And again, that that seems easier. Like people, people so actually seem display. interested. Yeah. Um, so what do you do to the bones? You just so I clean them with soap and water, um, soak them in hydrogen peroxide, clean that up. off, and that that takes off any like animal matter that's left on the bone um, right, or right. any any like meat that's left on the bone. Right. Um, it bleaches it a little bit, and then I coat everything in a two-part resin. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I've seen those on uh, YouTube where they. Pour one part into the other and yep, mix it up. Yep, mix it, and and that's what gives it the shine. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I clean it with rubbing alcohol, just cool. for good measure. And then, yeah. And so, uh, why don't you just tell me some of the ideas behind the pieces of jewelry? Like, what do they symbolize, or do you leave that to your customers? <laughs> so, I like working with bone because it's a way to take something that makes people on edge and uncomfortable and turn it into something beautiful um, and is a way to like discuss things like life and death in a way that people yeah. are comfortable with. Um, so just abstractly, whole... that's why I like working with bones. We've um, got the whole Day of the Dead thing and the voodoo stuff and you, know, you see people with skeletons. Yeah. Uh, people, people, yes, often think I'm a witch or a necromancer or something like that. Hey, stay here a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you never know. The uh, As far as specific pieces go, um, sure. So, Lily? Lily. My name is Lily. Um, my business name is Abersax.Inc. Um, I vend in various spots in the quarter. Um, most of the time I'm on the courtyard side of Jackson Square. Um, sometimes I'm on Frenchman Street. Oh, yeah. And then I'm also in an antique store called Second Line Antique. Second Line Antique. It's on Decatur. Oh, ah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, you've had pretty good luck. You haven't been harassed by the cops. Too no, much no, so. I haven't. Well, good. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, been been a good deal for me so far. Well, good. Well, I'm going to get one more pick. Yeah. Thank oh, you so much. Feel free to get photos of the work if you oh, want to. Yeah. Um, Let's do uh, if I can stand back up. That's what happens when you get old. Oh, I get that. Man, my body hurts and I'm not even that old yet. Yeah, just wait. It's a beautiful stuff. Thank you. But well, good luck with Thank it. Thank you. And remind me of your name? Bruce McGee. Bruce. Yes. Lily. Louisiana Anthology. If you look us up, we're all the top Google entries. Cool. But we mostly do music nice. postcards, but sometimes we do artist postcards to nice. mix it up. Nice. Well, good luck, I'm Lily. Glad I made it on. Yeah, I'm glad you are, too. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Now, on to our interview 
with Leslie LeBlanc. So Lamar made a I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Leslie Olivia LeBlanc. Is that right? Yes. And uh, you are running for uh, the third congressional district in uh, Louisiana against one Clay Higgins. Is that right? Yes, I am. And you're running as a Democrat. Yes, that's correct. Great. Well, uh, why don't we start by telling our audience, or you telling our audience, a little bit about yourself, um, as much as we're voting for certain positions on certain issues, we're also voting on the person. So, like, where you're from, what it was like, where you grew up, um, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, so, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I'm a single mother of two. I grew up in Judysville, Louisiana, which is a very small rural, rural community just outside of Lafayette. Um, uh, and I currently permanently reside in Austin, O-S-S-U-N, Louisiana, not to be confused with Austin. <laughs> right. Um, significantly smaller. <laughs> and it's just north of Scott, Louisiana. Um, again, just outside of Lafayette. Um, uh, most of my professional history I spent in um, business management. And um, after I had children, I switched gears. And I've always done advocacy work and volunteering on the side. <laughs> and um, I'm sorry, let me start it right there. <clears throat> volunteering and advocacy work has always been a part of my life, literally since childhood. Um, and after I had children, I made a career change, and I began doing that for a living. Um, I broke into the field because I'm a formerly incarcerated person. Um, Fifteen years ago, in when I was in my late 20s, I was arrested. Um, I was arrested for cannabis trafficking. Um, and I realized that the experiences that I had in the criminal justice system um, would lend themselves to um, assist with promoting legislation. Um, so I began testifying for Justice and Accountability Center at the state level. Um, I did some work with Mandy Landry and with the Vision, New Orleans Abortion Fund. And um, now I currently work for Promise of Justice Initiative, um, doing policy and organizing at the state level. Very good. And um you kind of got into what um what what interested or how you got into politics to start with. Uh anything else about your background you want to mention before we uh, get into um our um uh issues? Yeah, um I've always been very interested in politics. I was I was a child in the before third and fourth grade in the morning who would read the newspaper. <laughs> and then as I got to um, high school and college, I was heavily involved in debate and student congress and those sort of things. Current events and politics have always been uh, more more than just a hobby. Let's say that. <laughs> well, and we might have a mention, um, start off with uh, legalizing um, uh, marijuana, which is a big thing right now. And what you were doing 15 years ago looks like it won't even be a, a crime uh, any minute now, right? Yeah, um, I have to say so. I, I do have a, um, I have a chronic illness, and so I do have medical cannabis in the state of Louisiana, and it's a little bit infuriating. 
Right. Um, I, 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 it is. Um, I, I, I sit in the waiting room and I look at, and it, it really is like giant photographs of weed on the walls. You can buy pipes there. You can, yeah. Like literally anything. It blows my mind. And then you go to the websites, and, it, and I'm sorry, the vast majority of the people who are running these dispensaries are older white men. And they're right, in their, right. with their lab coats. And hi, I'm on the cutting edge of this miraculous medicine, proud to be at the forefront. But really, black people have been doing that for years. Oh, yeah. Time <laughs> <laughs> to let a bunch of people out of jail. Well, well, and well I yeah, go ahead. see the damage done by making drugs illegal. I mean, just look at our experiment with uh, uh, banning alcohol prohibition and the amount mm-hmm. of violence. Uh, that came along with making it illegal because, you know, your Bud Weiser truck doesn't have a shootout with a Michelob truck. Uh, they get along just fine. Now it was the making it illegal, which made it a much bigger problem. And which then made the owners of the trucks have shootouts because they were fighting, they were fighting turf wars, literally, you know. Yeah. But, but you know, um, um, we were, um, Thing the other day, we I personally think we should treat drugs as a public health problem and try to get services to people who are addicts uh, and help them out. But you aren't helping anybody by putting them in jail. Um, you know, it just seems to me to be the wrong model to be using for the drug epidemic. Uh, countries that treat it as a public health problem have a much lower addiction rates than we do. Mm-hmm. Oh, and death, they have lower death rates from overdose. Right. They, the recidivism rates are lower. Um, I, I, I honestly, so let's start with what you said with the ban, right? First of all, outright bans on anything. Have they ever worked? No. <laughs> right. You know, and like, like it's, it's just an end of story. Like, it's, it's not going to happen. People are going to do what they want to, you know, they're going to find a way to do it. Um, so we have to have think this. smarter, you know, right. instead of that heavy-handed, I mean, and I'm sorry, but at this point, it's willful ignorance. If right. we're going to continue just to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result, you know? Yeah. It's literally the definition of insanity. Um, and right now, and what's sad is that in some some areas and in some states, the only way to get Treatment for your addiction is to go through the criminal justice system. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I was shocked. Um, when I was in Tennessee, I spoke with a guy. And he said, oh, yeah, the only way that anybody can get on methadone is that they have to get arrested first. Wow. <laughs> that is ridiculous. So they can um, check in rehab or something? Or? Yeah, well, and that's the only way. And the only – from what – I spoke with this gentleman for a while, um, Told me I could share his story. Actually, um, I'm not going to say his name, but he grew up with a mother who was an addict. Um, we started talking because I hand out Narcan, by the way. <laughs> I carry it with me everywhere I go. Um, and so I offered him some, and he was like, "Oh, thank you so much." Like my mom actually passed away last year from a drug overdose. Um, and we started talking. It was at a campground that me and my kids stayed at, and um, just last within the last couple of months, and uh, this this guy. Um, he said his, his mother did surrender him and his brother to the foster care system. Um, he turned out, you know, to be relatively successful. 
not on drugs, not in jail, but his brother kind of went the way of his mom, and um, his brother is incarcerated. Um, but he's the one that told me, he's like, yeah, there is no, there's no treatment here. Um, you have to be arrested in order to be put into the methadone program. And from what I gather, it is because there is such a high demand, sadly. Um, but, I mean, it's also because the prison industrial complex wants that money. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you always have to ask who benefits. And, uh, you know, there's an inverted, inverse relationship in states between spending on um, policing, uh, courts, jails, and spending on schools. The more you spend on jails, the less you spend on schools. The more you spend on schools, the less you spend on jails. And, uh, of course, as you would imagine, Louisiana is the worst in both, you know, lowest school spending, and we imprison more of our population than any other state or any other government in the world, actually. Yeah, that was a that's correct. It goes with hunger and health as well. You know, the states that are typically uh, spending, say, the least on things like, you know, school lunch programs and school breakfast programs, et cetera, mm-hmm. and also, like, people like my mom were getting Meals on Wheels. You know, we had people that wanted to eliminate Meals on Wheels entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, never mind that that is a drop in the bucket. That kind of thing yeah. drop in the bucket. <laughs> really, compared to the military. Seriously. Spending that I hopped yeah. on our guest last week when the Pentagon doesn't even get audited, literally, and we mm-hmm. spend, you know, billions, if not trillions, on the military budget, which is ludicrous. Uh, Absolutely. We have a, a whole populace here all across the South, really, from Virginia down to, to, to Texas, but also in, in particular places in the South, like Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, up here even in Oklahoma, kind of in the upper South, where the people are hungry and they're also poor. And yet they're spending lots of money on, on, on corporate welfare, right? Yeah, they're spending absolutely. Scads of money on corporate welfare. You know, tax breaks for billionaires, tax breaks for corporations. I'll give you, you a prime example too. Also, the city of Lafayette right now. Too, you know, these various kinds of subsidies that you and I are paying for. And and when you say subsidies, so in in the city of Lafayette where I'm from, we have an extremely low-quality public transportation. The city is built in such a way that necessitates just about everybody to need a car. Um, we have bus service. It's awful. It's been cut since COVID. And, um, but wouldn't you know it, Amazon built a facility in Karen Road, just north of Lafayette, and guess what the city of Lafayette did? Expanded that bus line all the way to the Amazon facility and started offering year year passes for $20 a year. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And and, and no one made that correlation at first. It was it, <laughs> not a single person that I talked to. They were, oh, it's so great. The city of Santa bus service, only $20 for a pass. I'm like, yeah, look at where they expanded it to. That's not an accident. And everybody's right. like, oh. <laughs> You know, we're paying for Amazon to pay their employees and treat their employees like shit on our dime, in addition right. to them not paying their fair share of taxes. Right. There was a very minor, uh, kind of a miniature kind of a duplication of that right here in Ruston, where several years ago when the oldest, the very first Walmart in Louisiana was here in Ruston, and it's one of the oldest in the country. I think it's 20... Hmm. 26th or 31st, yeah, it's, it's old. It, it, it's based around 1970 or so. 
anyway, and it was also the first super Walmart in the state. But when that thing got built on this hilltop over there in North Ruston, right across I-20, this is no coincidence, not long after that, you start hearing people clamoring for an overpass right there at I-20. <laughs> A, a five-lane overpass. Which Don't what, mess with my overpass, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's what happened. So, it, you know, that connection was, they didn't build an exit up there, but they did build that overpass, uh, a, fi- a five-laner at, at that. You know, it was a, the two lanes uh, up either side, actually, for four lanes, two going north, two going south, and then a fifth lane, you know, for the turning lane. And that was built primarily to connect, you know, the Walmart with South oh. Ruston. Yeah, yeah, it goes right into the Walmart parking lot. So yeah, you, yeah, literally. You, kind of, you can't miss what it's doing there, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, let's move on to uh, other pressing topics. And uh, nowhere in the country is uh, climate change and global warming a bigger story than where you are Um South of I-10, uh, Louisiana is losing 80% of the land that's being lost to um, uh, erosion and going into the sea is being lost in the state of Louisiana. So we are, you know, on the front of that, and you're on the front of the front with Lafayette being so close to the Gulf. So um, what are your, you know, what's your stance with the Green New Deal, bringing in green energy um, uh, to the area, et cetera? First of all, so where Lafayette is located, um, my home is approximately 50 miles from the coast, 5-0-50. And and when I look at projected maps of what that property is projected to look like in 20, 40, 60 years, it's terrifying. Right. Um, And and I'm going to go, I'm going to, while I definitely think it's due to Climate change, climate change is real. Whether we want to admit it or not, it exists, and it will happen, whether you believe in it or not. <laughs> and um, But I also think that we need to look at the damage that a lot of these oil companies are doing. Oh, yeah. And, and, and for example, the Bayou Corn sinkhole, they literally damaged the salt zone, and it's now collapsing in on itself. And I think that we can, we can expect to see more of that. Um, our legislators at the state level are not holding um, any of the these types of companies responsible. Um, I have a friend that spends a good deal of his time flying over these sites that have it's capped wells that have supposedly been capped and cleaned up, and a good significant portion of the time there's oil sheen on the water. There's I've seen videos of him finding methane leaks because they don't even check for methane leaks. Um, so first, the first thing we need to do is stop giving these oil and gas companies free reign right, in our right. state. If we're sportsmen's paradise, we need to start freaking acting like it. Well, and um, um, straight lines, you don't find them in nature. If you look at a map of the Louisiana coast, there are all these straight canals that were dug by oil companies to yep. get their rigs in and out, and then they're just abandoned. And instead of going back to marsh, uh, the marsh starts melting into the canal and out into the Gulf. So it should be the oil companies, the richest companies in the history of the world, to repair the damage they're causing. But you get so much damage on so many levels there, too, in terms of, you know, not only the destruction of the coast, but you get saltwater incursion. I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. right now 
that down is it down below you? But anyway, St. Martinville, one of the one of the symbols of Louisiana is the Evangeline Oak down there with a statue of you know Dolores oh, yeah. Del Rio as Evangeline. Familiar, yeah. And, and supposedly salt water is in, is is intruding on the the Evangeline Oak as well as the other vegetation around there, which means eventually it's going to die off because yeah. fresh water, not only fresh water mm-hmm. uh, flora. The plant life, but flesh, water, fauna, that is to say the animal life, cannot survive in salt water. So eventually you're going to have mass die-offs down there mm-hmm. on top of all the sea level rise and everything else. The destruction of the, the seafood industry, there's going to go that too. I mean, we're talking right now about a, a whale. This was just published here, on, and I saw the articles on social media just this, I guess at the end of last week. A certain whale that lives in the Gulf is probably going to go extinct, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of this due to the climate uh, crisis. Yeah, and and I'll say it's the the waters around in the Gulf get a lot worse during the summer, yeah. and it's because of the bacteria. Um, yeah. My father was actually a biologist, and so I know all all the icky stuff. <laughs> but um, and that's I was talking with someone the other day about oyster farming specifically, the oyster farm, and and a lot of times they can't harvest because the bacteria levels are in the water is such that they don't feel that the oysters are safe to eat, and they're not. <laughs> I wouldn't eat them, um, you know what I'm saying, in, in some of these conditions. And so it's a struggle. Uh, and I want to say this because, so I don't, I don't know which one of you said it, but you talked about oil companies being basically the richest companies in the history of all the world, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I keep hearing people saying that I'm so sick of is that Louisiana is a poor state. Louisiana isn't a poor state. Louisiana has so many resources. That's why all these companies are here. Henry Hub in little bitty South Louisiana right off the freaking Vermilion Bay in ERAS, they set the price of natural gas for the world in Louisiana. Right. We are not poor. We have a problem with allocation of funds. We have a problem with giving tax breaks to corporations who do not deserve them. Exactly. Yeah, that's a problem of will right there. One of my tech professor friends told me one time, and I'm not sure that this is true, but it's back to the truth, and it said the uh, richest zip code in the United States is in Louisiana. The poorest zip code in the United States is the same parish, the same zip code, uh, because we have taken all of the money and given it to the 1%, and that leaves too little for the rest of the people. Which zip code? I'm curious. Is it New Orleans area? I think St. James out in Kent. Oh, that. Yeah, Mm. there's a video. Is it Public Affairs Research Council? I'm not sure. Some, Some... kind of a watchdog type group, anyhow, a policy group. They did a, a video about that. It's a short short piece. I think it's only about 15, 16 months long. And you can go on YouTube, I think, and watch it. And it's the same, as you said, it's the same zip code. Um, but it's right here in Louisiana. It's, and it's somewhere down in southeast Louisiana, I think. Yeah, I think it was St. James, but I could be wrong. Like I say, I never looked any of this up so before I'd use it on the stump. Well, I don't know. Nobody cares when Republicans lie. Uh, <laughs> um, so and that was my next, uh, speaking of which, you know, Captain Clay, um, he's not going to bring the Green New Deal to uh, Louisiana and to Lafayette. If, when we start making the wind farms, the solar farms, uh, you know, he's 
going to block all that. So if we want to keep being in the energy state, we need a Democrat in office that will help make that happen. Absolutely. Um, he is digging his heels in, and he doesn't care if he takes the whole state down with him. That's the bottom line. And, and I'm going to tell you, I think it's completely asinine because Louisiana is poised to be the leader in both solar and wind. We already have the manufacturing facilities. We already have the workforce. We have the offshore platform. Yeah. We, you know, we could easily begin converting a percentage and I already know machine shop owners and business owners who, who are willing, who are ready. They would be ready to start producing parts for solar panels, parts for, parts for wind turbines. And we could slowly, and, and that's, the, that's another thing that kills me is every time you hear Clay talk, oh, you want to get rid of oil right away, immediately. They want to get rid of oil. Nobody wants to get rid of oil, Clay. It's a, it's a necessary evil at this point. But right. we also need to be intelligent enough and have enough foresight to know that it's not going to last. Right. Um, and we need to start making moves to take Louisiana out of last place and start putting us at the front of the line where we deserve to be. And we've got all these guys. If you can climb up to the top of an oil rig, you can also climb up to the top of a windmill. And I've exactly. heard that if you put a windmill farm in the Gulf, it can actually slow the pro, you know, down a hurricane, um, just the way trees do once it hits land, um, and so mitigate the harm done by uh, hurricanes, even which you know, yeah. Not well, and, and, and to go back to what you just said, I mean, you just revealed that's one of their techniques, but you know, because it's all they've got, they resort to fear and scaremongering mm-hmm. uh, to to you know rally the troops, so to speak, and so then you get them saying stuff like, well, you know, they they want to kill this, so they want to do that, and it's also the language of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. Yeah, this this is very pertinent right now because of the assault on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. Uh, where the guy could have beaten that poor man to death with a hammer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you get this kind of language used by people. I mean, let's call the right what it is. These extremists are a, fan. They're a form of American fascism. That's what they are. Absolutely. 1,000%. And, and, and they are. They're instigating violence. Well, they speak the language of violence because they revel in violence. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the extremists revel in violence. I mean, there's just no way to pretty that up. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way, as I was telling you last night, you can't sanitize something like that with a spray of 409 or any other disinfectant. They love fascist love violence. It's been 100 years since Mussolini came to power. I think he was the first. And all The model always is to get their uh, people to go out and um, create violence in the street and then offer themselves as a solution. You know, like uh, all, the, all the riots you see on TV that they're, Republicans are playing over and over. This occurred under Donald Trump. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's writing under Biden. So, uh, you know, again, the real solution is vote for Democrats so you don't have a situation where people, um, you know, uh, take violence to the street. They're afraid of being charged, you know. And whenever you said, whenever you just said that about them vilifying people, like, I thought, like, I'm a, I'm a protester, too. Oh, yeah, and, me too. Like, the, the things that we were accused of, you know what I mean? And oh, yeah. They're blatant lies, absolutely blatant lies. Like, no, no one is out here smashing windows. You know, none of that was happening. Um, no. They certainly are going to try to play up that false narrative 
in order, and again, it's by any means necessary, no matter what ethical codes they break, what moral codes they break, they, they don't care. Yeah, remember what I told you. Fascists are not honest people. They're, they're nope. fundamentally corrupt. I mean, Bruce and I were talking about that right before we got you on the phone. They're not, they're not honest. You know, they're not trustworthy. They're not, they're By not their very honest. nature, yes. Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. It's built into them. Um, you know, you can't expect a, a, a steamroller or a bulldozer to do anything but what it's meant to do, which is roll over something. And that's what yeah. they want to do is they want to roll over everybody else they believe that there's a certain group of people, and it's always tiny, there's a certain group of people who should rule, and underneath them is everybody else who should be ruled. That's the, that's the way they think about yes. the world. Right, the boot in the face. And speaking of people who should be ruled, uh, the Supreme Court has recently overturned Roe v. Wade. I think it's the Dobbs case. And um, What is your position about women's right to choose in Louisiana and in the whole country? Abortions will continue even if they're illegal. And people like me will make sure that that happens. In the meantime, we're going to fight like hell to make sure that women get our reproductive rights back, period. Excellent answer. And a part B of that, um, there is the Equal Rights Amendment sitting on a shelf somewhere. It's been passed. It's been ratified by all the states that it needs to have for it to go into effect. And yet I never hear anybody, Republican, Democrat, um, nobody's on MSNBC saying we need to get this into the Constitution. So what is your position on finalizing the ERA and getting it in the Constitution to protect the rights of uh, women in the country, really, for the first time? It absolutely needs to be there. When you, We're in a situation now in this country where our elected officials and our, our Supreme Court justices are not, and especially our elected officials, I have to say, they are not doing the will of the people. You know, when 70% of people say that they are against an outright abortion ban and you have Republican leaders still full in, fully intent on um, introducing that legislation at the federal level, we have a fundamental problem with the way our country is running, because they are not representing us. And I have to say, I'm as disappointed with the Democrats in regards to this type of thing and others as I am with the Republicans, because there's absolutely no reason that we should be sitting on our hands on this. Right. People's lives are at risk, literally. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I'm going to add, like, I, I, had no, I have had two abortions in my life, okay? One was elective. I was in my 20s. I had to drive two hours, um, multiple times. There was a waiting period. Um, But I am so very grateful that I was able to get that service because it absolutely changed the course of my life for the better. Right. Now, the second one that I had was not elective. It was, was, I suffered a miscarriage during my second trimester. And um, my body hadn't, like, rejected the, the fetus the fetus at that point and um, my doctor at that time was able to schedule schedule me for a DNC an outpatient right. surgery if that happened to me today I would have been sent home until I became septic and was right. on my deathbed right 
And that's completely unacceptable. And there's no. And if we have to break the law, I'm serious. If we have to break the law to make sure that women's lives are saved, then that's what we're going to do. I have heard a proposal of a hospital ship in the Gulf that oh, yes. women Very from real. Texas to Florida could go to. Um, Very uh, real. Yeah, we need something like that. But really what we need It's is- in the works. It really is. It's in the works. And I work with some of these communities. It is in the works. Um, I'm also hearing that they're, um, settling, they're looking into setting, setting up satellite locations on, uh, near the borders of states right. with the most restrictive policies. Mm-hmm, um, and I'll so, tell you, so okay. part of what I do is like I, 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 I'm a clinic escort because there are protesters that are they hurt people. They're awful at these clinics. Um, well, they were at the clinics in Louisiana before, sadly, they were shut down. But I've also helped women secure services from other states because before, like before Louisiana had a ban that we just recently had come down, we only had three clinics in the entire state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had so much overflow from Texas that we just couldn't keep up. So we were having to send people to Georgia. To right. Y'all all over the United States, thousands and thousands of dollars it's cost, it was costing. And now it's even worse. I um, think in North Louisiana, the closest place to go for an abortion is probably Southern Illinois, is my guess. Uh, yeah. And down south and in West Louisiana, I guess the closest place probably would be, I'm thinking in Mexico, but I don't uh, know. The Florida? Florida. I, I, know what I have to check exactly what it is now because, like, you know what I'm saying, there's some communication <clears throat> tied up. But for a while, it was certain counties in Florida. Um, Georgia is no longer a no-go, no longer a, um, a place that we can use. It's, it's, it's scary, y'all. And, and to think that... I read an article just this past week about literally a child who was raised and impregnated by her stepfather when she was 10. They would force that child to carry that baby to term. Oh, yeah. What the it's hell? Appalling. It's appalling. You know? And, and, <clears throat> and that's why I say, like, I would, I would absolutely break the law it, it, for things like that. And there's a team of women ready to. I, we will not stand for it. We just won't. Orleans Parish decided they weren't going to pursue cases against, uh, you know, abortion providers or yeah. people who got them. And, and the state levy board has decided not to uh, give us funds to protect the city from floods until At they... At the behest of Jeff Landry. Which is <laughs> nothing, but, that's nothing but extortion. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The governor. That's what that is. That's the oh, yes, extortion. he is. Well, well, it it actually is extortion. You know, it, how does one affect the other? But that's what they're going for. Um, also, I would like to point out that Louisiana is and has been for some time the most dangerous state to get pregnant because of our abysmal health care system that, you know, Jindal spent eight years closing hospitals, but Blanco closed big charity before he even got into office. So, um you know, you're taking your life into your own hands as a Louisiana woman when you decide, I want to have a baby. But at least it's your decision then. Um, but, you know, now we've got a state that's deciding for them. Yeah, we're not going to provide you with adequate health care or anything else for that matter. But we are going to make you have that baby because you need to be punished for having sex. And that's what that is. 
I also, I don't know, I'll, I'll say this, like, I, I also think it's an attempt, and I do, I think that this, this abortion ban is an attempt to um, increase the white population. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 60% of, of people who go out and get abortion services are white women. And I think there are certain segments of the white, I know there are certain segments of the white population that are absolutely terrified of even the thought they might be outnumbered by brown people. Well, I absolutely think that plays like a very huge part, but they, I can tell you that the conversations that I hear at the state level in the work that I do, that's not mentioned, not in public. Well, all right. <laughs> but, I mean, what is mentioned was, um, oh, Cassidy was asked about Louisiana's very high uh, mortality rate for pregnant women. And he said, oh, well, uh, oh. if you notice, uh, Louisiana has a high number of uh, people, of uh, black people, and it's mostly them who are dying from mm-hmm. this. No problem, right? Um, yeah, it was literally like, oh, well, if you just take the black woman out of that data set, we're fine. Yeah, we're doing fine with our. He white literally people. said, yeah, he literally said he did not, he does not care about the mortality mm-hmm. rates of black women. Exactly. <laughs> I, I take that very freaking personally. Yeah. I had a very good friend who almost died in childbirth, and she happened well, to be yeah. black. And and she voiced to her doctors that something was wrong. It was her second birth. She knew this woman is a freaking professor at a prestigious university. I cannot tell you the degree she has, how many books she has authored. Brilliant. Even if even a woman like that has difficulty advocating for themselves. Right. Imagine how they're going to shut down a regular person, y'all. I oh, really yeah. believe that if she wasn't as forceful as she is and who she is and as strong as she is, that she would not have lived through her second um, birth. I do. It's well, I'm, I'm devastating, at, and it's unacceptable. I'm looking right, right now at the, at the census records from the government, and this is as of the recent census, 2020. And I had said, and I've said this before on the show, Lincoln Parish is one of the best educated parishes, not just in North, it's the best educated in North Louisiana, but it's about the third or fourth best educated in the whole state, literally. 35, a little over 35% of the populace has a baccalaureate degree, which it bruises, and I've laughed about this before, which is why I say Lincoln Parish is one state in, in, in one parish in the state <clears throat> that Sounds southern, but thinks of it western because we have such a high percentage of college educated people. That's but so interesting. Why is that you think? But, yeah, but if you peel yeah, that college back, yeah, if you peel it's because of Tech and Grambling and the community college, uh, the branch of Delta out of Monroe. And, and they're both college towns. It's all each town has going on. So. Yeah. Exactly. But, but if you peel that curtain, like you peel curtain back, and what you see is we have about, in fact, it's barely over one in five of our residents who's living in poverty. That's unacceptable, too. And about, I think, around 24% or or maybe a little higher of the children in Lincoln Parish, this is people age 18 and younger, are living in poverty. Now, think about that. When this kind of level of prosperity... What was the number for for children? Yeah, it's around 20... Well, the total number is 21.7%, so it's a little over one in five. But I think the percentage of children is about what it is for the state. I think it's around 24% or between 24 and 27%. So it's around a quarter of the kids are living in poverty. You know, people age 18 and younger are living in poverty, and that's unacceptable. We shouldn't have a 1% or 5% living in poverty. With the Absolutely. Stuck of a pen, the Democrats passed 
without any Republican help or very little, the um, the tax credit for children, three hundred dollars a month if you're under six and uh, two fifty if you're over, and um, you know, with another lack of a stroke of a pen, it ended the program. But while the program was in place, it cut the amount of childhood poverty in half. So we know what's worked because we did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, oh, uh, you know, Captain Clay Higgins blocked all that money from coming back to the states, including his congressional district. Well, and it's because he wants to keep the donations flowing into his campaign coffers. Yeah, he's a, he's a puppet of the, really class or the wealthy class. And, and this goes to a book that I read. I mentioned on the show before, of, of all, you'd never get a book like this written today, but the book was co-written, of all people, by uh, then-Senator George McGovern and then-Senator Bob Dole. And it was about childhood hunger. And their point was there's not – the problem is not that we don't have enough resources or and particularly like food and, and infrastructure in order to get food to children. We have not the will to get the food to the children. But the same is true of poverty, and Bruce has just mm-hmm. said that. I mean, we don't have the will, uh, at least in certain quarters, to eliminate poverty. Allocation of funds, that's exactly it. And I was asked that. Where are you going to get the money for this program? Y'all, we have money. Let's start with, like you said earlier, and I actually said this, I said, let's start with the military. Yes, that's right. We can get their budget right there. (laughs) When are we going to get it? We own the printing press. We can print all the money we want to. And we do when it comes to a trillion dollar war in Iraq. Let's just put it on the card. Uh, yep. You don't have to borrow it. You don't have to tax it. You can just pass it. And we could do that with um, Medicare for All if we chose to. Which, by the way, what's your position on Medicare for All? Um, I think that we absolutely need to have a universal health care system, 1,000%. Um, I think that... Medicare, the way it is set up currently, absolutely needs to be tweaked in a variety of ways. Um, I'm actually speaking with someone about this um, within the last few weeks. But from state to state, it's not standardized. And and for some of these applications in the state of Louisiana, they actually have to be submitted on paper with a physical signature. And if it's not received, (laughs) say within 10 days with a physical signature, they have to send it back. And all that paperwork has to be spelled out all over again. And so it really is things like this that are among the biggest barriers to implementing these programs. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say, it's, again, like, like much of, pretty much the rest of our society, it's complex by design. Yeah. Uh, there's a kind of beauty to a big, dumb program. Uh, you get sick, we're going to take care of you, and they'll be paid for by universal insurance. You, uh, you need pills, uh, you pick up your pills, universal insurance will pay for it. And by the way, we just got the right to um, have Medicare and Medicaid uh, negotiate with, um, with um, medicine companies, drug companies, which we, you know, Republicans want to reverse that, but it's bringing down the price of... Uh, medicine. Um, but yeah, I think part of the frustration with Obamacare is um, I go on the website and there are 50 different plans and how do yeah. I sort for the other to know which one's best for me? It's almost impossible. 
It, it is true. And then, and then what if you choose one and like, I, I, I've had friends in situations where they choose one that seems to be the best for them. And then six months down the road, they're prescribed a new medication or their doctor wants to try a new type of therapy or, or something like that. And boom, oh, well, this plan doesn't cover that, but this one does. This is, you know, and there's no way for them to switch until the, um, they get that option again. Or your general practitioner will send you to a specialist, and there are no specialists locally in, um, that are covered by your plan. Also, right, and that, covering and dental, you know, people's dental and, and, mm. and, and uh, you know, various vision expenses as well. I mean, that's, I'm going to need new glasses probably pretty soon. Uh, I broke a pair of glasses. I don't know if we're going to be able to be, you know, re- re- just to replace the frames as an arm and a leg. Uh, and then you start looking at other things that people have to have various kinds of, you know, procedures with their vision, cataract surgery, uh, various other kinds of things, you know, maybe a, a detached retina or whatever else that you, know, that you can, you know, name off. Then you look at dental procedures, like just a simple thing like, uh, you know, having uh, one teeth cleaned or, or even worse, like dental surgeries, like having, you know, a tooth pulled or having a, a root canal uh, done or having implants put in. That's not cheap. That's not yeah, and, and the bottom line is, like, some people just cannot afford it. No. Um, they just they go without, in fact. Yeah, no. absolutely they do. Um, my cousin, he does, um, he works in dentistry where he assists people who, have, who don't have insurance. And um, a lot of what he does really is, like, mitigation until they can afford, you know what I mean, to get the actual procedures that they need. And... I don't know at what point people decided that teeth and eyes are like optional, yeah, <laughs> not necessary. Gonna... Like that's one of the most asinine things I've ever heard in my life. I happen to believe <laughs> that you should keep your teeth in your head <laughs> as long as you can. You know, to, quote, to quote Bernie Sanders. <laughs> well, I have a friend, had a friend about ten years ago, um, rough, tough biker dude who. Um, had a toothache and went and go get it looked at. And the infection went to his brain and killed him. So, you know, this is health care. Teeth are tied into where you live, you know, and as our eyes, as our ears. Like, uh, Oh, they knew this back in the 60s of all time uh, when my granddad finally succumbed to his second heart attack, and they think part of what messed his heart up and more than likely gave him heart disease was uh, some likely infections in his mouth. Oh this was in the 50s and 60s, yeah, and then he died from the second heart attack, I think, in 65 or 66. But, yeah, the doctor said that at, you know, in the early, mid-60s. So this is actually nothing new. Now we just have proof of it, you know, with you know, various kinds of studies that have shown that those bacteria start traveling out of the mouth, and eventually some can travel to the, you know, to the cardiovascular system and then weaken the heart. I'm sure that's why they give, um, I'm sorry, I'm sure that's why they give antibiotics. Before you know what I'm saying, before they have any major procedures too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, universal healthcare is your four, which is uh, we're far as that too. And who doesn't want to be healthy? You know what I'm saying? Nobody wants to stress over going to the doctor. Nobody wants to stress over. Oh my God, can I even afford this prescription? Well, what if Um, your job, like you know, I'm 64. It'll be a few years. Well. Six months I go into Medicare, and I could retire if I wanted to, but what if at 55 I had wanted to go out and start a 
business, but I was scared to lose my health care. So it's actually anti-entrepreneurial not to offer universal health care because people have to stay in the safe job with good insurance. Absolutely. Quit. Um, and, you know, teachers don't make all that much, but we have pretty damn good insurance, yeah. right? Uh, right. So, yeah, we'll stick there as long as we have to. Um, oh, what are some of the other issues that are facing us right now? Um, oh, uh, student debt forgiveness and the idea of free college, which when I went to college in the 1970s, I made three twenty-five an hour. Uh, and my tuition at Louisiana Tech was $125 a quarter. So I could work four hours a week and pay for my school. It was mostly being subsidized by the taxpayers of Louisiana. And as soon as my cohort graduated, we started needing a, a tax cut for oil companies and did that. But then who's going to pay? Well, now the students do, and then they leave with a huge load of debt. So um, what is your uh, perspective on, you know, free college and then uh, – and canceling out more of the student debt. We, we had $10,000, but that hardly even touches it. You know, that's interest for a couple of years. Yeah, um, student debt straight up needs to be wiped out. Uh, we cannot ignore the fact that these lending practices are insanely predatory. Um, and we're inviting them into our schools right. to do this to our children. Right. We allow this to happen. Um, and we sold these people lies. Mm-hmm. Why? And let's be honest, we sold these people lies, and we allowed these companies to come in and make money off of our backs. I know people who have paid their student loans two times over, and they're still making mm-hmm. payments. That's mm-hmm. ludicrous. We need to wipe all that out. Now, yeah, um, I'll say this too. One, and and I think see a lot of let me let me go back a little bit today and how whenever you were in school so when i started college in 1996 minimum wage was 525 515 an hour i think then and it was 900 dollars at ul lafayette for full time that, that was 12 hours or more so you could take up to 18 hours without you know anybody's approval same 900 dollars um now it's more than four times that. Right. Um, and do you know that the state of Louisiana is still actively trying to push people who have not completed their degrees to go back to school and take out student loans to do so? Yeah. What are we even doing? We're, we're staring <laughs> down the barrel of another economic crisis. I mean, right now, what, Bruce, what is the student debt? Is it one point? Seven trillion or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? it's rounded into uh, it's, 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 it's closing in on two trillion dollars. Uh, it's just crude, you know. Well, and the, the best, the best estimates to the economists, even just you know, standard economists, much less the lefty ones like Richard Wolff, but the best, uh, I'll say, progressive economists like Joe Stiglitz and Paul Krugman are saying that this could spark the next uh, recession, if not full-on depression, because the student debt is just so high. Well, it was a key part of. Um, Occupy Wall Street, and they were the ones that first started talking about debt forgiveness. Um, here's the thing. Our student loan payback is more like a credit card payback than a mortgage or a car loan. Yep. Because those you have a defined length of time, and it's either 15 or 20 or 30 uh, years. And uh, if you get a fixed mortgage, the price never goes up, and uh, you know when you're going to get out of debt. But this 
things like credit card, people can pay the minimum amount that covers just the interest and never touch the principal and be paying for the rest of their lives. I know and professionals who literally have joined the National Guard in order to get some of their student loan forgiven. These are doctors, y'all. Right. Because that's how much they owe. Oh, I know a, a, a woman in Shreveport, actually, an old friend of mine who's a nurse who's a little older than you are, about five or six years, and she quit ULM because her family were frankly poor. And she was a good, she was like, a, I think, a B plus A minus student. So she was a very solid student. Uh, and something close to what Bruce and I were in, I think she was in history or literature or something, but she quit because her family were so poor, uh, she couldn't pay her bills. Well, I'm going to say this, this year, too. You know, 20, years, 20 some odd years ago, she had to bail, or 25 years ago, she had to bail out of ULM because of that reason. So she quit after yeah. about a little over half her degree she had completed, I think around three years of it. She had, you know, about three quarters of her, of her curriculum she finished, but she just couldn't afford it. So she's just now going back to school. Uh, she had gone on to be a, an LPM. She's just now going back to school in, you know, totally different area, I think, in social work. But she had to, had to bail out just because her, you know, expenses were so high. And this is, you know, in the mid-90s, late-90s, I think it was yeah. in the mid-90s. Well, I'm just <laughs> angering a couple of college professors. I have to say that, in my, like, in my opinion, I think, I think that we have cheapened degrees. <clears throat> um, I look at job listings, and they're after people with a master's degree. Right. And you, you, you're paying $50,000 a year. Yeah. You can't pay That's off your ludicrous. Degree. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and I'm just going to say, I don't, I don't have, I never graduated. I actually, I graduated from high school. I, I, um, I started college early, before I graduated high school. Um, and I was offered a full scholarship. I was offered scholarships to several colleges, but I ended up taking the one to UL. And, um, I wasn't ready, and I think that's another problem that we have. If we want kids to complete, if I had been given the opportunity to wait a couple of years before jumping right in and having a better idea of what I wanted to do, like for real, it would have been it would have been a better experience for me, honestly. Um, but currently, our the, the teachers in our and look. I homeschool my kids, but I will fight to the death for public education. Um, and I'm concerned because the teachers that I see coming out of schools, I don't, the new ones, I don't see them coming out being taught how to teach children to be critical thinkers, how to, you know, to discuss right. things on their own, how to, uh, they're not nurturing, this is not, they're not creating lifelong learners. Right. I right. find that they are, they, um, they are they are basically taught to teach children to take tests. Exactly. Like that really is what it is. They're not – if you talk to somebody in, like, the behavioral health department, like child child behavior of a university, you talk to somebody in education, you can hear two different completely philosophies right there. <laughs> you know, and if we are not teaching – my daughter did one year of kindergarten, and what I saw in kindergarten, it was not developmentally appropriate. I know that. Um, what we are asking of children now, they are not getting what they need. And with the, we don't need them to, you know, be right on par with all the standards, you know, data, 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 data. Right, right, It's all right. about the money. It's all about the money. It's about the curriculums that they want to purchase every year. And I can get into that, too. I'm out. Well, so, um, but um, it's, it's disturbing to me. It really is that it, seeing, seeing my daughter in kindergarten, and they, it's not a learning environment. 
It's just not. It's a very regimented, and of course, what they want is a regimented workforce that will work for bees, absolutely. Um, and who wakes up in the morning and says, what is Louisiana's number one problem? I know. We are too educated as a state, you know. Uh, <laughs> but to hear these, you know, right-wingers talk since Jindal got in power, all they wanted to do is cut colleges and uh you know, it's not like we're not ignorant already, guys. Well, I feel like by the time kids get to high school, too, they really, they haven't been taught to think for themselves and decide what they want and what they're good at. Right. They've been told what to think and what to do and what, you know. And so they they get out of school and it's like, okay, boom, now college is what you're supposed to do. And that's where the loans come in. Um Right. And then a lot, I know so many people, too, that took out loans and then ended up not finishing. Yeah, and then you have to pay it back anyway. Exactly. Um, yeah, even even for just a quarter, like a tech or a semester at UL or UL yeah. or wherever else. Yeah, you still got to pay it back. Absolutely. And they're, so they're saddled, you know, as the saying goes, they're saddled with the dead or they're left, you know, out to dry pretty much. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Um, I, I would kind of hurry things up. Uh, infrastructure. Uh, Louisiana needs roads, bridges, uh, levees. Um, rail. We need passenger rail, too. Rail. Yeah. Rail, 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 rail. There's a logical line rail. from New Orleans to Houston that would come right to you guys, but it's not there because Jindal turned it down. And, um, you know, what's your position on – and Clay Higgins turned down all the infrastructure that – uh, Joe Biden is trying to bring to the state. You know, he, he voted against it. So what is your position on expanding our investment in infrastructure? Okay, well, the very first thing we need is to repair the bridge in Lake Charles, the Ice and Bridge in Lake Charles. You All can right. stand under that thing and literally pieces fall off of it. And Clay Higgins what? has been promising for nearly six years to do something about it. And surprise, surprise, he hasn't done a thing. Uh, in one of no, the he did something. He voted against it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he swore an effort. Thanks, Clay. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and don't forget the hurricane. Uh, was it Ida that took the, the, the one of the um, the casino boats and actually like smashed it into the bridge, further damaging it? Oh my god! Um, yeah, like, those pictures. I'm just like, I don't see how you can be the representative, of basically, almost all of South Louisiana. And I'm sorry, but it looks like Clay doesn't give a shit. No, well, neither do his voters, apparently. Um, <laughs> they want the show. They want the, the little guy in the costume out there, uh, you know, doing his uh, uh, hijinks. And who cares? Well, yeah. It's, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's basically Yosemite Sam very, at this point. Yes. <laughs> yes. And once upon a time, you know, Louisiana's always wanted uh, – flamboyant politicians, but here he long, he built roads, he built bridges, he built hospitals, he built clinics, he built schools, et cetera, et cetera, you know? How about a flamboyant, intelligent congressional yeah. um, representative? Can we do that, guys? I'm pretty sure that we can. You could be flamboyant. <laughs> yeah, look at one of my... I groups. can be. Bruce, I mean... One of Bruce's <laughs> heroes is, is Huey Long, but one of mine is Earl Long, and Uncle Earl for all of his, you know, crazy like a fox and, you know, going and spending time in a sanitarium. I mean, the guy was, as one of his, you know, uh, analysts said, he was a political genius. 
but he did a lot to lift up the poor people right here in Louisiana. He didn't have the national ambitions like his brother had. He wanted to make Louisiana a better place, and he yeah. expanded the charity uh, hospital system. I was born in one of them. I was born in the old Shreveport charity, which was then called Confederate Memorial. That's where I was born. And it's okay. a clean hospital with competent uh, medical professionals. Maybe that's the trick. <laughs> Let's reopen all these charity hospitals as Confederate Memorial, and then all our right <laughs> should go. Uh, you know, what, what's a statue of Robert E. Lee out in the uh, driveway if you get free health care inside? You know, we, we, can put, we can make that deal. They <laughs> would be for it. Can I put googly eyes on the statue? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Flamboyance is okay if they're doing something for the people, you know. You know? Really, I mean, that's really my motto. Good. Yeah. So, have, <laughs> we good. have we missed some of, of your uh, platform planks that you would like to mention? I see we've been going about an hour. Um, I do think gun control hasn't been brought up enough. Oh yeah, yeah. Election, um, and it's not really. I, I think gun control really isn't the word that I want to use. I, I think it's sensible gun law. Um, so I'm, I'm pro two amendment. I'm pro second amendment. Um, I was raised in the country. Um, firearms are necessity. Nope. If I don't have a firearm, my, all my chickens die. <laughs> um, sometimes um, there have been times where if we didn't have a deer, maybe we wouldn't have meat in our freezer for that winter. Um, and I do think they play a role. Um, I have open. I have carried a firearm in the past. On my person, I no longer do that currently because um, since I have children, I know statistically it's more dangerous um, right. and more likely to be shot um, simply by the fact that I would have it on me, so I don't. Um, but I do recognize that it's definitely needed by some people. Right. Um, but so I, oh I've also sold, I've all, well, let me say I've also sold fire, and I. It was only for about three or four months. It was like the most toxic job I've ever had. It was a locally owned gun shop um, in the Cadiana area. But I learned a lot, and I got to see how the system works, and it's super broken. And like much of the other systems, um, there is there. I, I feel that there's no standardization in these background checks. Um, as the gun seller, you don't know anything about the person that you're selling this firearm to. Mm-hmm. You call a phone you call a phone number, you give them the information on the form that you're supposed to give them, they put you on hold, they come back and they say either yes you can sell it, no you can't sell it, or three day hold. You don't know why. I have had police officers with no problems whatsoever on their record come back with a three day hold. No idea why. They had to come back and get their gun. Three days later, no problem. Um, but I have also sold a firearm to a former police officer who then uh, I sold it to him. He, he was a little old man, y'all. In his 70s, sweetest little thing. Sold him a firearm. It, his background check went through so fast. About three weeks later, I show up for work, and the owner's wife is like, Lefty, um, Mr. Such-and-Such, um, that gun that you sold him the other day, he used to shoot his estranged wife, and then he turned it on himself. The cops were here. And I'm like, See, well, this is, this is the best part, guys, is that there apparently had been a prior incident involving him and the same woman in which there was a standoff with a SWAT team. It didn't get reported to Nick, and that gun got in his hands. So we have a problem, and it's multiple problems. Um, but it goes back to that same thing where they don't want standardization. They don't want all their systems to be connected. 
But that's what we need. We need transparency in this. Yeah. We need standardizations mm-hmm. and reporting. And and I think that if Democrats go outright assault weapon ban, it's going to be difficult. They're going to get hella pushback from Republicans. <laughs> and I don't think a Republican can argue that they don't want transparency in, in why their background check would be rejected. I think this would be a good step, and it would be a quicker first step. Well, gun companies are figuring out systems like lockouts or, you know, the owner can run the, can operate the gun, but nobody else can. And then uh, under the Republican, you know, impetus, we passed a shield wall for a gun company, so it comes becomes really hard to sue them. All the safety measures went out the window, you know. It, like you know the, it was like the, the suits against the tobacco companies. They were, you know, they had, yeah. had that kind of, you know, episode or those instances as kind of a heads up for them, so. When think about ghost guns, too. Like, I don't know if y'all are familiar with, like, additive manufacturing. Basically, 3D printing is the consumer yeah. of additive manufacturing. Like, you can make a real firearm. You can 3D print that. There are those yep. are ava- those plans are available online. Those are ghosts completely unregulated. State Louisiana, I think one of the very first things we need to do is close the person. The first freaking ludicrous that it, you you can sell you can sell a gun to a felon right now. Right. Person to person, with, you don't have to do a background check. Here you go, sir. Have a nice day. Here's your firearm. End of transaction. And in last year, we actually recently had an issue where a, a person who was an actual gun dealer was doing some illegal things, and basically he was buying firearms under his SFL for his business, transferring those guns to himself personally, and then selling them um, with as a person-to-person sale, which he was not supposed to do, and he sold multiple firearms to sellers. Of course, yeah. And there are these... Uh... He's still not in jail either, by the way. <laughs> oh, of course not. <laughs> But there are people that buy guns um, for somebody else that can't own a gun legally. Um, like a straw, straw man, a straw man yeah. kind of purchase. Yeah, a straw man purchase. And now you you are, as a gun dealer, you are advised to look out for those. It's pretty obvious, you know what I'm saying, whenever they do come in. And I have to say, in my experience, straw I've always seen straw, like a couple have tried. Straw purchases were always turned down at the establishment where I work. Huh. They could figure it out. Yeah, oh, you could tell. You know what I mean? Like, you really can. Sometimes it'll be like one person will come and look at some gun, you know, a, a certain gun, and they'll go back to that after the call, and the other person will come in. <laughs> you know, it's like the reverse of the thing where the teenagers are hanging outside of the mini mart asking creepy old guys to buy alcohol from them. Now it's the creepy old guys hanging out of the gun shop asking the kids to buy a gun for them. <laughs> it's wild, some of these people, too, y'all. They have. When I tell you they have arsenals, and, and oh. they don't, and, but I want to say that, like, the people that I'm, that I'm speaking of, they, they aren't violent people. They don't, they hunt, and they, they shoot for fun. But I could never fathom amassing, they, they view it as a, I have to say, they viewed it as, a, like, an investment, basically. Um, but, y'all, I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of firearms for one person. This is not well, exaggeration. Yeah, there, a lot of those things are concentrated in the hands of one person. There now, aren't there more firearms in the U.S. than there are people in the country? I think. Yeah. Oh sure. But my cousin, my husband had married that that guy from. Well, I was telling you about yesterday, and the rest of that story is he it was this guy from Michigan, 
who was a literal Nazi or at least Nazi sympathizer, and his or uh, her brother, who's my age, had been down at their house one time. He didn't want me to know all about this, but the brother-in-law didn't. That was buying all these guns and was a Nazi, but he was not only stockpiling, he was a prepper, but he was stockpiling weaponry, too. So my cousin tells me, man, he says, did you ever go in that room he had? I said, no, they wanted to keep me out of there because he knew I was going to just have a conniption fit when I saw all this. Well, he said, I went in there one time because he brought me in there. He said, he was, a, and my cousin's got a few guns himself, but he's not a fanatic. I think he's got three or four guns. Yeah. It's all for hunting, yeah, for deer hunting and squirrel hunting. He said, I went in there. He said, that place was loaded up with guns. I said, I suspected that. I said, I know my mom said, who was his aunt, said that he was stockpiling food in there. He said, oh, yeah, he had all kinds of doomsday preparations going on. He said it was outrageous what was in that room. But it was one of the rooms off their hallway there in their little rent house, and you're uh-huh. loading that thing up with guns. Yeah, it was just it was, it was was just appalling what that guy was collecting, you know. I'm not, this doesn't even surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, AR-15s and all that. Did he stuff. build them, too? I, I used to know people that would build them so. in their homes. Well, he, well, he That's in, the other thing. That's the other way to get around. He was, he was into the, the sovereign citizen movement, too. and just you know, he, was, he was a real creep, this guy was. But he was from a part of Michigan. Uh, They're on the, on the coast. Oh, of yeah, they Michigan. did that a lot up in Michigan. Yeah, there's a lot of neo-Nazi and white, you know, white Aryan or Aryan nation kind of activity up there. And... In fact, Michael Moore, the satirist filmmaker, had done one of his first films where he's actually not even the maker of the thing, but he has an appearance in it. That's where he's from. It's Michigan. So he was there interviewing some of those guys kind of in their natural habitat. And I told my cousin when I got a print of that film, I said, you've got to sit down with me and watch this. I said, it's some terrifying stuff. Yeah. And that movie was made like in the 90s. You know, it's probably a 30-year-old film. (laughs) But and the things have only gotten worse since then with these fascist type organizations. Are there any other uh, issues that you'd like to uh, take a stance on that even I've forgotten to ask about? Well, I just want to bring attention to the fact, too, for my campaign that. So I don't know if y'all are aware, but I've decided I'm actively not raising any more than five thousand dollars in campaign funds. Oh, anything yeah. beyond that, I'm yeah. returning. <laughs> Um, but it's important to me because I feel, um, I mean, obviously, we've reached a point in this country where regular people are priced out of the election. Right. Um, you right. know, and, and I have gotten crap for this decision <laughs> pretty much from the get-go, but this is like a hill I will die on. Um, for me, it really is like it's the point of the matter. Um, it should not be this way. This is how we got to the point where we are basically being ruled by an elitist class of people. That's right. Um, and I will not participate. I will not participate. And that's the only way that – that really is the only way that we're going to start implementing change. Like, we have to refuse to participate in this. Right. That's how I see it. And that's the first step. And in order to do that, we may have to enlarge the Supreme Court because Trump put three extremist, corrupt, uh, you know – yeah. politicians on the court. So what is your position about enlarging the court? Do it. Okay. Um, I, I'm serious. I'm, I, we, we have more people to represent. Um, we're a more yeah. diverse nation. Yeah. Um, the court was stacked in a manner that is, quite frankly, shady as hell. Right. Um, especially his last appointee. Right. Uh, our friend from Louisiana. Um, um, yeah. Uh, she kind of claims she's from New Orleans. 
We know she's from Jefferson Parish. Yeah. <laughs> no, girl. You do not claim me. What about expanding the country and adding uh, D.C. and if they wanted um, Puerto Rico to the uh, number of states, so we have 52. Obviously, I see. I, I, don't, I don't know that Puerto Rico wants that. Um, I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, we don't need to be colonizing any other um, indigenous land. Um, and you know what I mean? Unless they are, like, begging us to come, which I don't right. see. Um, I think we need to leave Puerto Rico the hell alone. Um, and I think that D.C. does. But why would you not deserve a vote to put in the district of Columbia? It's ridiculous. Um, no taxation without representation. Exactly, and that's that goes right back to the family. prisoners in jails too. Prisoners in jails too. Exactly. Right, we right. Expanding the vote in the prisons. I mean, those people are still, for the most part, are still citizens, which means they ought to be able to vote. They, I, they actually are citizens. And what I mean, imagine so I get arrested, I own property. Do you think they're going to stop charging me property taxes? Hell no. I'm still getting tied. That's right. I don't well, and remember, so. I think every single prisoner in jail deserves a vote, especially our, when legislation that these people are passing directly impacts their lives. Well, and it's like the three-fifths rule. If you've got 10,000 prisoners in a parish, mm-hmm. the parish gets representation reflecting that 10,000 people. They just don't let the 10,000 vote. So exactly you know, outside have a larger vote than they ought to. Let's call prison gerrymandering. You remember we brought on the young woman from Shreveport who's an activist and an attorney, and she, we talked about this briefly with her, Candace Batiste, and that is a big deal that, you know, that she has taken up as one of her uh, causes, you know, for activism. But it is a form of gerrymandering. That's a way of surreptitiously uh, recreating slavery. You know, it's specifically in the amendment to eliminate slavery that, there's an exception for people who are in bond to the state. And um, so we have a very large population because certain people in our state still want slaves. Oh, and they're very vocal about it, too. Yeah. The yeah. one representative from Shreveport, he, in no uncertain terms, was like, why would I do this? I'm going to lose my best work. Right, 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 yeah. Um, well, and I mean, but to, to fully, and this is the thing that a, lot, that a lot of people sadly do not get is that the carceral system as it exists came into being because slavery ended, and they needed to figure out a way that they could keep using black people for free labor. So they started creating crime. Um, they, and cannabis is one of them, a big one. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was like, quote, unquote, black behavior. You know, that's the kind of they out. A whistle of a white woman, jail. You know, and so we started imprisoning black children and men at increasingly, like, insane rates. So then we started convict leasing. And the state of Louisiana would literally get paid by plantation owners to, here you go, here are these inmates to come work for you for yep. free, give us our money. And then the Louisiana realized they could do it better themselves. And so they bought the biggest plantation right. and called it Angola. Right, right. Um, and so I'm actively working. This is something I'm passionate about because, Good. as y'all know, Amendment 7 on this ballot, uh, are y'all aware of Amendment 7 that's going to be yeah, on the yeah, ballot? Slavery. It's been, right. been a little contentious. Um, the bill author has kind of backed off of his own legislation a little bit, and I have to say I'm very disappointed. To be quite what frank. was his purpose? What's the purpose of that amendment? Because 
It's a little shifty in the way they word it. You have to wonder what they plan to do with it. It is. Well, I'll, I'll say, so the initial, the, the way that the bill was initially worded, it would have, like, struck out all that language, period. It would have just removed the, you know, except in the cases of, invol- you know, involuntary service, blah, blah, blah. Completely gone. And I'm just going to be honest, it's the Republicans didn't want it, y'all. And, right. And, right. and I'm going to also say other really big opponents on stuff like this are the Louisiana Sheriff's Association and the Louisiana oh, Association. Um, they are probably among the worst offenders uh, at the state level in, in halting good laws from passing. But um, I digress. They, um, that, and that's why. But that's why it, it didn't pass in its original form. Um, it was in the House Committee, I believe, that the language was changed. Now, right. y'all know it really, it, like so many of these amendments, it's so convoluted. The reason that this language, this particular language was used is because our Constitution is very, our state the Louisiana State Constitution is very similar to that of Utah. Hmm. The state of Utah had this measure on their ballot in a prior year. And so this language, they passed. So this has been in their Constitution um, at least one year. I want to say two. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, but so that is specifically why this language is chosen. It's working for Utah. Utah is a good conservative. I'm here, and this is basically how it went in committee. <laughs> Utah is using this language. Utah is a good conservative state. It's working for them. Um, you know, do you accept this language? He, the the bill author said he did. And they and during this discussion, of course, like these are there's lawyers in the room. So many lawyers in the room. Discussions were had regarding. Any, you know what I mean? Because you have to look at all possible outcomes. You know what I'm saying? Whenever you're, whenever you're passing the state legislation, um, in case shit, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and everybody decided, you know, it's, even though it's not ideal, even though it's not the language we really, really, really wanted, it's still a, a step forward, right? Right, right. Um, and so when I saw the advocate article come out, and I saw Representative Jordan had basically slip on his own bill, I was honestly shocked and very confused. Um, the conversations were already had. Um, and so I immediately began reaching out to the experts that I know, most of whom were lawyers. Yeah. Um, and basically the consensus that I, and the consensus among them all has been that, why, again, like I said, while this language is not ideal and in reality, it will the, the passage of this amendment will likely not change the day-to-day lives of inmates in the state of Louisiana. It's still a step in the right direction in that <clears throat> it will not only lend support to the other four states who have similar proposals on their ballots this year, but to the states that are going to be attempting to introduce it next year. I want to say they said 14 other states plan to introduce oh. similar measures, measures, and we hope to get it changed at the federal level. Like, this isn't the end. Um, I do realize that the bill author has said that he's going to bring it next session, but I'm going to be honest, I don't see it happening. It's a right. fiscal session. Um, right, right. It's going right. to be tough as hell to pass anything, just with the makeup, I'm serious, of, of, what, we ha- of what we're working with. And I don't, I'm going to be honest, I don't, I don't think that it's going to happen. Uh, and so I think that this is the chance to pass it, and if it doesn't get passed this time, 
I don't think that we can count on Houston to bring it back next year. So it's almost do, it's do or die, I guess, this time around. Yeah. And I'm going to say this. I, this is like me speaking purely. Like, I've analyzed the situation, y'all. I really have because I'm, it, it just blows my mind. I'm serious. It's almost unprecedented, I feel. <laughs> um, to, to, have, like, just such, to have such like a, a wild flip like that, you know, on, and on something so important. Um, and, and I really, I really feel like there are powers in this state that fear the fact that this amendment is on the ballot, and they are afraid that if this passes and the language is changed, that an inmate will bring litigation and win, and they won't have their slaves anymore. And that, that really is truly what I believe from the bottom of my heart. I think that they're, that's what they fear. Well, very good. So is there anything else you'd like to uh, bring up? Any more issues we uh, haven't covered? I have one for you that I had mentioned yesterday to you as kind of prep for you. So what gets you up in the morning and keeps you passionate about this work that you do? And activism, but also now as a candidate, what what kind of keeps you inspired or, you know, keeps you plugging along? Ah, uh, see, those are two different, two different motivators. <laughs> uh, as a candidate, I'll tell you, um, I'm not a very good politician. <laughs> <laughs> I've turned around a lot of good advice. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> and you know what? I'm not sorry, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> take a sip of water, guys. I'm still a little bit under the weather, weather from the flu last week. Yeah, and here's no. people saying they're getting regular colds for the first time in a couple of years. We had, we definitely had flu. Basic influenza type A is what we were dying. They tested. Oh, that's even worse. It was, it was worse than COVID, I swear. <laughs> um, okay. But, um, yeah, so as a candidate, I never thought I would run for office because um, I, I'm i not necessarily a rule follower. Um, not to say that I'm unethical, but I think that – so some people say that Leslie just – doesn't think the rules should apply to her. And the fact of the matter is that I think some rules shouldn't apply to anyone. When it comes to rules, um, there's the rules for the rich and powerful and the rules for the rest of us. So, right. you know, if you're unilaterally disarming in the face of somebody like Clay Higgins, who, you know, follows the interior logic of the uh, mad dog Republicans that are out there these days, um, uh, you know, I mean, you already did that with funding, right? Um, so, um, I'm sorry, wait. I lost my chance a little bit. <clears throat> sorry, my kid came in to get the iPad. Um, you can, like I was saying to you yesterday, you can watch some of the, the posts that I put on social media, uh, which capture a lot of this. For example, you know, freedom for the 1% is tyranny for the 99%. Oh, or I remember. The- yeah, prosperity for the 1% is, is poverty for the 99%. Yeah. I mean, this is their operating system. If you want to know, when they talk in language mm-hmm. like that, that's really coded language for the elite. Oh, yeah. And they oh, always yeah. align themselves with the elite. They're either politicians or they're, you know, sycophants for the politicians, or, or they are the backers of the politicians, one of the three. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I was saying. I was like, I couldn't remember what the topic was on, but that's what it was. Like, I never thought I ran for office. Um, like, I am a former cannabis dealer. I have a criminal record. I'm a single mom. I kind of have a potty mouth. I am known for being escorted out of a city council meeting for telling the mayor that he fucking sucked at his job because he does. 
I didn't think I'd ever run for office. I used to joke that I'd never make it past the, past the vetting process. <laughs> Right, but um, I I got involved. Well, and I thought, like I said, I've always been involved in volunteer work, and I've always been interested in politics. But um, I, I'm, a couple years ago, I qualified to run for Democratic State Central Committee for my district, uh, 42, and I now hold that office. Um, so I'm a representative for District 42 in Louisiana Democratic State Central Committee, um, and it was through that work. And honestly, it was after a particular meeting of the third Louisiana third district um, caucus uh, that I was approached after this meeting by the head of the third district caucus, and I was asked to consider running against Clay Higgins. Um, I thought it was kind of thought it was a joke at first, um, but I knew like Clay needs to go, and he ran as a caricature and kind of a shit talker, and. I'm like, why not run a shit talker against a shit talker? Plus, I'm a hell of a lot smarter than he is, too. Yeah. <laughs> so how's it going, do you think? Uh, have you seen any polling to indicate, um, you know, whether all the opponents will cross the 50% threshold to keep him from winning outright? I think there's going to be a runoff. Oh, that would be I great. Mean, I do. Um, I've actually been pleasantly surprised at poll the poll numbers. I do my best. Not to, and I'll say this, like, I do, I do my best not to pay too much attention to those things. Right. Because it, if you obsess over that stuff, it's, it really is just, it doesn't get you in a good headspace. It doesn't do any good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm forward thinking. Like, let's, let's go, you know? There was a recent um, article about the late uh, polls, and nine out of ten of the polls that are being published right now are uh, from Republicans. You know, they hire the poll to be made the way they want right. it, then they can come out with the results that make it look like their success is inevitable. So if you read too many polls, you'll just give up. But I don't, you know. It's like, it works like junk science does, where you start yeah. out with your conclusion. There's a name for that, but it's where your conclusion's already proved. And in biblical studies, you and I studied this kind of thing, Bruce. It's proof texting. You know, you have an idea, and then you start looking around through the text to prove your idea. But you've well, already, you already you proved know, it in your own head. Kansas was definitely going to pass that amendment with, to block abortion rights. And, uh, oops, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of women really brassed off and they aren't being counted by these polls somehow. Um, or Generation Z is saying the same thing. That you know, I'm seeing stuff on Twitter uh, through my mean alias on there <laughs> that, uh, that, hey, you know, Gen Z is coming for these, these extremists. And they're going to, yeah. they, say, they say, at least from their perspective, they're going to put a lot of them out of business is what they're going to do or drive them, you know, send them home packing. Yeah, and that's what we're hoping. Uh, and one of the things that really, like, inspired me to go ahead and finally, like, actually decide to run was the one comment that, a, that someone who, like, very well respected in their field told me. I respect them very much. Um, but I had, at first I had decided that I wasn't going to run. And... Um, this person told me, man, I am so disappointed because I was finally excited about going to the polls to vote for somebody. And I am a person that can get, get a crowd up and engaged. Um, I, I'm a leader. I know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, and I'm kind of a character, too. And you're not the one percent. You're not... Just the, I'm definitely not the one percent. Right, 
And I find it interesting. There's like nine candidates, I think, and all the like in every poll that I've seen, and there was even one that was deep in its entirety. I've never been lower than third. Oh, good. That's great. Um, and I find that really interesting. I do. I, I, and I, for me, I think more than anything, the outcome of this election is going to be interesting. Like, I hope that it proves to people, like, I did this with less than $5,000. Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be amazing if you do. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Well, we really appreciate it. Sharing about oh, your life. I enjoyed it so much. And good luck with your race. We'll be following We don't get to vote because um, we're in District 5, but we will be following with great interest how you do. Awesome. Well, if y'all aren't doing anything next week, too, feel free to come to Baton Rouge. We're hosting at my apartment building. We're having the... Um, we have a really nice club room, so I have it reserved for the vote yes on seven oh, that would um, be. thing. And my, um, it's gonna, but yeah, y'all are more than welcome to let me know. Well, thank you so much. And again, yeah. wishes, you. you know, try to slay the dragon. <laughs> yeah. You take care. Yeah. Y'all too. It was uh-huh. so great talking to y'all. Thank yeah. you. You bet. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Leslie for coming on our podcast and wish her the best as she, uh, Campaigns against um, <laughs> two-gun Clay Higgins um, made the, uh, you know, I don't even want the best person to win necessarily, just not the worst. <laughs> um, you know? She is committed to the common good, and whoever mm. is committed to that, we need to be, you know, really um, highlighting their work, so to speak, because... We have so many extremists that are in office right now, and it's not just here in Louisiana. It's all across the country and you know, various other places, too. Real extremists that are against the common good, that's, that's the real threat. Well, you know, I mean, they want to overturn our election system and, you know, just appoint Republicans from here. And, and they're saying, you know, standing up and saying, if I win the governorship or the secretary of state, nobody will ever win again except Republicans because we're going to make sure of it because, you know, We'll see. And um, that's where it's we are. The, it's the, um, the extreme of what Tom DeLay said years ago about wanting to reduce the, you know, the then opposition of the Democratic Party to, as he put it, a permanent minority party, uh, right. which amounts to one-party rule. Um, that's what it, what it is, really. And that's, that's the recipe. You know, it, it, in the old days, it could have been Democrats reducing Republicans to that, but that, that's a form of tyranny when you start doing well, that kind of thing. Republicans are not... You know, there's not enough new Republicans coming on into the um, electorate to offset the old ones who are dying. And so they're basically a permanent minority party, and therefore they're going to have to cheat to win. Because, you know, to win you'd need a majority, but it's really hard for them to do that anymore. They, they really stuck. You know, George Bush tried to um, invite Hispanics in to try to fix their uh, problem of... Um, demographics but you know trump ended all that <laughs> well he was a uh, well i think was he is a pretty fair spanish speaker too and was actually yeah. not as draconian about immigration as we see with extremists of today you know he wanted a, a deal an immigration deal with some amnesty and people becoming citizens and this is a way to get the hispanics into the big tent but uh, the Republicans, they don't want those uh, minorities like that. And although, you know, they'll take Irish and they'll take uh, Italian, but, um, you know, 
Mexicans are bridge too far for some reason, uh, so they won't, you know, they just can't uh, let go of their xenophobia. Okay. Yeah, and it was a fight to get Italians accepted like that. I know because my aunt was Sicilian. I mean, and she uh, yeah, maybe uh, told story. Yeah, they told stories about that, about you know how they didn't tell people when she married into the family that she was Sicilian. I mean, they told them she was Spanish and French and I think right. something else, maybe Portuguese or something. But anyway, you know, God forbid, this is in the forties, particularly in, in this part of the South. You did not tell people. You're well, marrying an Italian person. Maybe uh, in 50 or 60, maybe in 50 or 60 years, uh, Hispanics will be welcomed in. Uh, but they aren't right now, not very much. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne, and we certainly want to thank Leslie for coming on and, and sharing her platform with us. Um, again, as I said last week, and I say again, do go out. Uh, it is your responsibility uh, as a citizen to vote. It is your responsibility. I say this again. I say it to my students. Go out and vote. Uh, go out and, and cast your ballot because democracy demands that you participate, but that you be informed when you participate. So do read up on the, the constitutional amendments. Read up on the candidates and get out there and cast your ballot. This is the very tail end of early vote period here in Louisiana. And then the election's next week, so do bear that in mind. So thanks again, Lacey, for joining us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.